Good morning, church. In a moment, we're going to read from Luke chapter 17. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Luke's biography in the 17th chapter, we're going to springboard off of that passage into Romans chapter 1 and spend the bulk of our time therein. Two weeks from now, as Tyler has already mentioned, we're going to kick off a brand new series of messages entitled Core, Core 101. I'm really looking forward to this series of messages because we're going to try and unpack Christian theology in such a way uh, as to make it not only more understandable, but more meaningful for every person at Grace Community Church. When I was in school, Tyler's had classes like this. They're called Systematic Theology. Christianity is one of the only world religions around the globe whose theology is gathered, collected, and then presented in a very systematic, logical, consistent way. I want to talk about things like Christianity as it relates to other monotheistic religions around the world. You hear quite often people say, well, aren't our world religions basically the same? The answer to that question is absolutely not. Christianity isn't anything like Judaism. It isn't anything like Islam. We're going to talk about prayer. How do you pray? How am I supposed to pray? Somebody teach me to pray. We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the Bible and its relevance, the pursuit of absolute truth. We're going to talk about sanctification and the process in the follower of Jesus' life. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and his ministry in your life. What is the Holy Spirit? What's he do? What's it about? And what does that mean to me? We're going to talk about a lot of fantastic subjects, and we're going to present them over a course of several weeks in a very logical manner so that when this series is complete, you will feel much more confident in the system and logic of your faith. Today, however, we have the opportunity to address something that's been on my heart for a very long time. Uh, in the office, we call these standalone messages because they're not part of a series. The calendar presents a week, or in this case, two weeks, uh, that we're not engaged in some kind of direction or some kind of series. So I get to come out here on this Sunday and I truly speak my heart. I'm not bound by some kind of series plan or idea. Now, what I want to do is begin with an illustration by bringing all the house lights down. Darkness is typically not our friend. Some of you are growing uncomfortable simply because of the darkness. In fact, the longer we remain in the darkness, the more uncomfortable you may become. At 2 o'clock in the morning, in your home, no matter how long you've lived there, or how knowledgeable you are about the layout of your house, Darkness is not your friend, especially if you have children, because if you have children and at two in the morning in the middle of the darkness you step on a Lego, it's going to change your life. You're going to see a vision from God. No matter how long I've lived in my home and as comfortable as I am, I designed our home, built our home. I know how it's laid out. I'm still very cautious at two in the morning, in the darkness, because darkness tends to make us unsure. It makes us anxious. But what happens when I do this? I venture to say every eye in the auditorium is on the light. Every eye in this big auditorium is focused on this tiny, flickering, golden light. Ow. Let me try that again. Light in the midst of the darkness does all of the opposite things. It makes us comfortable. In fact, 
I'm hard-pressed to call this darkness now that I've got this. Darkness cannot overpower light, but light will always overpower darkness. And so long as there is one flicker of light, no one in the room can say that we're in the darkness. H.G. Wells is a world-famous 20th century science fiction writer and futurist. He survived the bombings of World War II in his home city of London. Every night, the Nazi bombers would rain down their fire and fury on the darkened capital of England. You see, they'd turn out all the lights so that the bombers had more difficulty hitting their targets. On one particular evening, H.G. Wells' neighbor, who was also an author, incidentally, her name was Elizabeth Bowen. She found Mr. Wells on his hands and knees, literally trembling in his front yard, shaking. She tried to comfort him and console him. He said, it's not the bombs. It's not the bombs. He said, it's the darkness. I've been afraid of darkness all my life. Now, what happens when the light returns? We're all a little more comfortable. I can see my notes. I'm not going to ramble on aimlessly because now I know where I'm going. All of the things that darkness brings that makes us uncomfortable, the light can overcome. Now that, of course, is natural darkness. We're talking about physical darkness. But today, I want to talk about spiritual darkness. And just as the absence of physical light means natural or physical darkness, the absence of spiritual light means the absence of spiritual darkness. John chapter 8 and verse 12, here's what Jesus said. He said, I am the light. Pretty profound statement, isn't it? I am the light. Pretty presumptuous, if you're honest. But he didn't stop there. He said, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Wow. Not only a significant statement, I am the light, but a significant promise. If you're willing to follow me, you'll never live in darkness. You will know the light of life. Now, for the next two weeks, I may sound like an Old Testament prophet to some of you. I may sound like an old-timey preacher to some of you. To the next two weeks, I may actually offend some of you, but hear me when I say that only demonstrates how clouded our judgment has become in a culture that has denied the truth and lives in darkness. If I offend you over the next two weeks, that only proves the point of Romans chapter 1. If I make you anxious and uncomfortable over the next two weeks, that only demonstrates the fact that our judgment is clouded because we live in a culture of darkness. When Jesus said, I am the light, he was claiming that as not only a man, but as the God-man, that's the deity of Jesus Christ, he was God in the flesh, I bring light into a darkened world. I am the light is one of seven I am statements Jesus made about himself. He said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the door or I am the gate he said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And on the night Jesus was betrayed, 
just hours before he would die, he said, I am the true vine. What Jesus said in John chapter 8 is that followers of Jesus have the light. We possess the light. Followers of Jesus are spiritually illuminated. Now, that doesn't mean we always respond to the light. That doesn't mean that the light sometimes embarrasses us or cramps our style. That doesn't mean we always respond or walk in the light. It certainly doesn't mean that because we have the light, we're always right. (laughs) No. Here's what it means. It means that because we follow Jesus and Jesus is the light, we have the light so we can know the truth. And Jesus said the truth is what's going to set you free. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus is engaged in dialogue with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, in case you don't know, were the religious supermen of the day. They were keepers of the Old Testament law. The Pharisees in Jesus' day were responsible for the teaching, for the protection, the conservation, for the implementation of the Old Testament law of Moses and the prophets. Jesus reserved his most harsh criticism for the most religious people, the Pharisees, in his day. In Luke 17, they're engaged in dialogue, and they ask him a question. Verse 20. Look at Luke 17, verse 20. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, the kingdom of God to the Pharisees was a super important topic. You see, the Old Testament on multiple occasions, prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they pointed to a coming kingdom with God himself on the throne. The coming kingdom meant a lot to the Pharisees. Goodness, it meant a lot to any Jew alive 2,000 years ago because their history, the Old Testament, points to this time of national sovereignty, but hey, Israel's national sovereignty during the time of Jesus was 1,000 years in the rearview mirror. The grand glory days of Israel's sovereignty under kings David and Solomon was 1,000 years in the past. The Babylonians took it from them, followed by the Persians, followed by the Greeks, and now the Romans. So under Roman occupation, the Pharisees asked Jesus, Tell us about this coming kingdom. When's it going to get here? Keep reading. Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. In other words, God's kingdom has no boundaries, no geography. There are no limits. There's not a state capital or a national capital. There's not a, a capital building with a throne in it. The coming kingdom of God is not something That can be observed. Now, don't misunderstand. There is coming a literal kingdom according to the Bible and according to Jesus. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 20. It's called the millennium. Following the great tribulation here on earth, God will introduce 1,000 years of perfect reign whereby Jesus Christ is literally and physically the king over all the earth. But for now, according to Jesus, this kingdom cannot be seen by human eyes. This kingdom only exists because followers of Jesus respond to the light. It's not something that can be observed, verse 21, nor will people say, oh, here it is, here it is, or there it is, I see it coming. Because the kingdom of God, watch, is in your midst. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God has arrived, 
because the king has arrived. Jesus is saying, because I'm in your midst, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, the Bible's had a lot to say about this kingdom, both Old Testament and New, and not totally, but primarily the Old Testament points to that literal kingdom that's coming not only in their future, but in ours as well. But the New Testament, Jesus and all of the apostles, they spoke of this invisible kingdom of Luke 17. In fact, I've got a graphic. We can put it on the screen. Jesus said he was the light. And if you follow Jesus, you possess the light. You have the light. You can know the truth, and the truth is going to set you free. That's part of the invisible kingdom that exists within the visible kingdom. Now, the visible kingdom, visible kingdom is characterized by darkness. I have often speculated, even publicly, I wonder what the world, the visible kingdom, would look like if we removed every authentic follower of Jesus Christ. What if in a blink of an eye they were gone? I wonder how quickly the world would go dark. I wonder how the darkness would swell among men. Were it not for followers of Jesus and the invisible kingdom, the world would only know darkness. The Bible makes it crystal clear. Followers of Jesus have the light. In fact, that's why we remain. Have you ever wondered, why doesn't God just take us to heaven as soon as we buy into the light? As soon as we embrace authentic faith in Jesus Christ, we've made that choice, we've made that decision, according to the Bible, that's sealed us for eternity. We're part of the family of God. Why didn't God just take us? Can you imagine if I were standing up here talking on a Sunday morning and poof, that person disappeared. Well, they must have just bought in. Poof, there goes a whole family. Man, they must have just bought in. Poof, there goes a couple in the back. They must have just embraced authentic faith in Jesus Christ. Why didn't God do it that way? Because there would be no light. There would be no witness. There would be no testimony in the darkness. There would be no truth in the lies. Jesus said in John 17, verse 15, he was praying for his disciples and his future followers. My prayer is not that you take them out of this world, but that you protect them from the evil one. The evil one and the evil kingdom of darkness. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I have the light. I don't always walk in it. I don't always respond to it. But I'm part of a kingdom of light that exists within a kingdom of darkness. And Jesus said, I don't want to take you out of that kingdom of darkness. I want you to light it up. There's never been in our 246 years as a nation a king in America until now. <clears throat> I think the kingdom of America has evolved over the last three presidents. For the last three presidents, using a firestorm of executive orders, have bypassed Congress completely and taken control like a king would, like a monarch would, ruling from the throne. Now, I've taught Romans chapter 1. In fact, if you want to go ahead and turn there, I've taught Romans chapter 1 many, many times. If you've been around church for a while, you've probably read this passage as well. This is likely to be familiar to many of you. Paul no sooner introduces himself in Romans 1 as the author of this letter to the church in Rome. He spends a few paragraphs talking about how he'd love to come and see him. 
I'm looking forward to seeing you face to face. Until verse 18, bam, he gets right into judgment. He starts talking about the coming wrath of God. Now, here's what's confusing to many people about Romans chapter 1. Paul's going to get down to the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts of unrighteousness and sin. Many assume that God's wrath is coming because of the sin that Paul identifies in Romans chapter 1. What I want to clear up over the next two weeks is that the sin that Paul identifies is not the reason for the judgment. The sins are the judgment. The culture has decided to hide the light, to cover the truth, to suppress what is true. And how that's now playing out in a culture under judgment are the sins that are identified, the unrighteousness, the debauchery even, of Romans chapter 1. Read with me in verse 18, Romans chapter 1. Again, Paul's just introduced himself. He says, I can't wait to come see you face to face. And look at verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the godlessness and the wickedness of people. In other words, it's here. It's coming. The wrath of God is the judgment of God. Now, don't don't miss this. God's love is unconditional. His grace, his mercy, they have no limit. God is God. There is no exhausting his resources, his attributes. However, the Bible makes it perfectly clear that God cannot, nor will he, allow injustice, unfairness, unrighteousness to go unchallenged or unpunished. Ours is a culture that's being judged, not because of our individual sins, but because we've covered the truth. Keep reading. The wrath of God is being revealed against godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's why the wrath is here. That's why the judgment is here. Paul is saying judgment is coming on societies and popular cultures who suppress the truth. Verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. This is the reason, verses 18 and 19, for the judgment. It's because what should be obvious to us, we have hidden. What should make complete and total sense, and what did for centuries, we've decided to corrupt. Again, the wrath is coming since what may be known about God is plain to them, Because God has made it plain to them. In other words, Paul is saying God has revealed himself, at least to the extent that according to the next verse, we're without excuse. Through general revelation, God has revealed his existence. You know what general revelation is? The sky, the moon, the solar system, the stars, the ever-expanding universe. Science has just now caught up with the idea that the universe had a beginning. It wasn't eternally infinite. Science calls it the Big Bang. We call it the imagination of God. We call it Genesis chapters 1 and 2. General revelation reveals the existence of God. According to Paul, that should be obvious. That should be plain. Look at the animal kingdom. Look at humanity. But not only general revelation, through special revelation, God has made it clear. You know what special revelation is? 
The Word of God is part of special revelation. This divinely inspired record, this historically preserved account of God's story, it reveals the existence of God. Not only the Bible, that inner conscience of man, that inner desire to know right from wrong. God has used general revelation and special revelation to make it plain to man that he exists. But, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature, things we cannot see, they've been clearly seen. That's like an oxymoron. God has invisible qualities, but surprise, surprise, based upon general and special revelation, they're clearly seen. Someone even in the darkest corner of the globe, without a Bible, without knowledge of Jesus, can look up into the sky and come to some kind of conclusion, they're not the number one center of the universe. Surely this should be obvious, according to Paul. God has made it plain to them. It's been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. God has revealed himself to the point that men and women are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Their thinking was corrupt. We're walking in clouded judgment because our thinking is darkened. The obvious has become hidden because the truth is suppressed. Again, verse 20, uh, verse 21, their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God, which should have been obvious. It's plain to see. Now watch what happens next. Verse 24, therefore, therefore. Now, I've told you this before, but every time you're reading your Bible and you come across the word therefore, you need to pause for a minute. You need to kind of back up and remind yourself what it's there for, okay? Verse 24, therefore, in other words, because men try to suppress the truth, because men are driven to cover the light, because mankind denies God's very existence, Therefore, what did God do? God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. The Greek language of the New Testament is a very uh, bright and picture-driven language. The Greek words for God gave them over is like dropping off a loved one at the penitentiary. Now, I have been with families when we've dropped off a dad, or a mom, or a son to a state penitentiary, or a federal penitentiary. A judge ordered that on Monday at 9 a.m. they're to surrender themselves. Let me tell you something, that's not a pleasant day. The freedom is gone. A family, the love, the empathy, that's all gone. They're handed over to the warden. That's what Paul says, because man cover the truth. Paul says, God turns us in. He hands us over. We're going to get 
what we've been asking for. God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to what? To sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Read that part again. Sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. If that does not describe American popular culture, I don't know what does. This is the first sign, verse 24, of a culture under judgment. He gave them over to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. You say, Mike, are you saying that ours is a culture under judgment? That's exactly what I'm saying. Mike, are are you saying that America, the freest, most prosperous nation on the face of the planet in the history of civilization is under the wrath of God? That's exactly what I'm saying. And this passage demonstrates it. For centuries, we've covered the truth. We've suppressed what ought to be obvious. And now we're reaping the wrath of God. The degrading of our bodies, the sexual immorality. You see, that's not the sin that produces the judgment. That's the first evidence of the judgment. Here's number one, the sexual revolution. For us, it began in the 1960s and 70s. You see, this is not an American problem. This is a world problem. 2,000 years ago, it was a Roman problem. This exists around the globe. This exists across the oceans. There are men who attempt to suppress the truth, cover the light, hide what should be plain. For us, our sexual revolution began when I was barely born. The 1960s and 70s seemed like a great idea at that time, by the way. Free love. No limits. No boundaries. No consequences. Popular culture of that day dreamed of breaking free from the Judeo-Christian values that had governed proper behavior and cramped any free thinker or any free lover's lifestyle. Is there anyone in this auditorium today who would deny the devastating impact the sexual revolution has brought on the family in the United States? Anyone? Is there anyone who now, knowing what we know, 60 years later, would call the sexual revolution in America a good, healthy, wholesome thing for the family. All the turmoil that we've witnessed over the past two days when we turn on the television news, all the anxiety and the caterwauling and the protest and the anger that would never have happened were it not for the sexual revolution of the 1960s. God's plan since the very beginning. And again, according to Paul, this should be obvious if we just look around. God's plan from the very beginning is for one man to marry one woman, and they build together a committed, lasting, stable union. We call it marriage. And in that environment, we raise family. And in that environment, We enjoy sexuality and sensuality for a lifetime. That is God's original plan. Is that our plan? Is that popular culture's plan? Is that the plan your music sings about? Is that the plan you read about on social media? No, popular culture has perverted the plan because they've suppressed the truth. They've covered the light. We've swallowed a lie when it comes to sexuality. 
You see, and God's judgment is allowing us to get exactly what we wanted all along. We're like spoiled children whose parents finally say, okay, okay, you're going to get what's coming to you. That is Romans chapter 1. You cannot overestimate the value of a clean and clear conscience in a marriage, in a home. I mean, think about it for a moment. Ours is a culture where children are born to unwed parents and homes that are anything but stable. Ours is a culture where children are raised in single-parent households, more often than not, in poverty. Promiscuity, adultery, pornography, open marriage. They've degraded, they've wounded the American family. Because ours is a culture in which anything goes. Anything goes. You can't judge me based upon my private, personal, sexual fantasy life. You have no business judging me. And all of our devices that help us surf the internet, they're set up to help us hide that shameful part of our lives. Men, I have had conversations with probably hundreds of men who've crippled their family and destroyed their marriage because they couldn't get a hold of their sexual fantasy life. I tell parents all the time, man, I'm so thankful to God I'm not 14 years old anymore running around with a library full of porn in my back pocket. I'm so thankful. Ours is a culture that because we chose to cover the light, embraced promiscuity, embraced family dysfunction. And what are we left with? We're left with families who suffer. Again, you cannot overestimate the value of a clear and clean conscience in a marriage. I tell men this all the time. Your greatest ally to help you overcome sexual sin is your wife. But you got to own that struggle. Got to be honest about it. You got to put it out there. You got to talk about it. Popular culture has suppressed the truth. We've covered it up. And now we're paying. Next time, what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the remaining two judgments that are upon culture. And you're going to be shocked as we meticulously work our way through the rest of this passage at how they perfectly overlay American popular culture. When I originally wrote this message and took it into the office to give it to Paulette for her to build the visual aids. I laid it on her desk. It actually made a sound. It was like nine pages. She said, you're never going to get through that. She was absolutely right. So we've covered one today. Next time, I'll give you the remaining two. Romans chapter one lays perfectly over our broken culture in America where we've covered the light or at least attempted to cover the truth with darkness. We are who we are as a nation because somebody decided to suppress or deny the truth. Darkness has attempted to cover the light. But remember, remember what I said at the very beginning. Light will always overpower darkness. Light can exist apart from darkness, but darkness cannot exist when there is light. And guess who has the light? I have the light. You have the light. We have the light because we have Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light. And the light is the truth. 
And the truth is what's going to set us free. Let's pray. Father, for your word that is so crystal clear and so incredibly relevant, thousands of years after it was written, I give thanks. Thank you that any sensible adult who puts themselves into Romans chapter 1 can see America. It's obvious that we've attempted to suppress the truth, to cover it up. And it is also obvious that we are reaping what we have sown. So, Father, open our eyes first to your glorious light through your Son, Jesus Christ. And then open the eyes of our communities. Open the eyes of our nation. Make it so obvious that this is not the way that more and more people will embrace the light that can only be found in Jesus Christ. It's in his name I pray it. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.